0: So God, we thank you for the gift of your word that we get to reflect upon now. We thank you for the gift of your people who are gathered together today in this place, singing and worshiping in your name. We pray that your spirit would attend to these next few moments and that we would be changed, not by anything I say, but by what you do in our hearts through your spirit and through your word. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. One more thing. Here we go. So, today, and also for the next few weeks, we're going to be living in the book of Ephesians. Um, I'm not going to pretend to try to cover a six-chapter book in four weeks. Uh, That'll i be with you. So it'll kind of be jumping in and out. Today we'll be in... Uh, Ephesians 2 for a little bit. Next week, we'll, uh, two weeks from now, we'll finish Ephesians 2 and then Ephesians 3 and 4. Um, today, however, I'm going to kind of introduce not just Ephesians, but also what I think is Paul's biggest theme, the concept of grace. I think if we were to summarize what is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 about, it's grace. It's those famous verses where we encounter the, the, the phrase, by grace you have been saved, right? So what I want to do is get us into that theme, um, both by looking at that text, but also by kind of talking about what does grace even mean? Because... Uh, leave it to an academic to say maybe we haven't quite understood what it means. So our, t- our talk then is an incongruous community, the foundation of grace in Ephesians 2. And believe it or not, I want to start not with Ephesians, not with the Bible, but with Santa Claus. And the bad news for you is I've just heard what wonderful singers you are, and I want to ask you to sing. So, if you will. He's making a list, checking it twice. He's gonna find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. And let's sing. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why, Santa Claus is coming to town. Thank you. So, um, I, I realize I've just ingratiated, uningratiated myself to everyone now, uh, but anyway, here we learn that Santa is watching us for the purpose of making a list who's naughty and nice, So he can distribute gifts to us in accordance with our perceived value. What is the point of a list, right? If not to say, you get coal, you get what you asked for. Those who are naughty will receive less, although hopefully not a lump of coal. And those who are good will receive more. In other words, Santa's gifts are conditioned because he seeks to figure out who is worthy of his gifts and then place those gifts in accordance with that perceived worth. But once the gifts have been given, notice the relationship is over. We're a few months after Christmas. Has anyone written a thank you note to Santa? Anyone called up the North Pole and said, I got exactly what I wanted. Thank you so much. Nobody? See how that's a one-way relationship? You ask, hopefully... You are evaluated, worthy or not worthy. You are given a gift, and then it's over. Is that how gifts work? No child probably ever writes a thank you note in this room. And if you do write to Santa, it's only to ask, not to give thanks. There is seldom an expression of gratitude, and certainly there's no expectation of making a return. Thus, Santa's gifts come to us as a valuation of our worth, but with zero expectation or further strings attached. I want to suggest that for many people today, the Christian God functions much like Santa Claus. They wrongly think that God won't love them unless they have some value or merit based upon their life and conduct. Likewise, many also wrongly think that because they've accepted God's gift and received God's love, that there are no strings attached. And just like Santa, God's gifts are based on our worth and they come without expectation. I'm going to argue that's wrong. God isn't like Santa Claus. Rather, unlike Santa, God does not give us anything on the basis of our perceived worth. As we'll see from Ephesians 2 today, were he to do that, we would be screwed to put it indelicately, (laughs) we would have no hope. And second, I'm going to argue that those who do receive God's gift, that is salvation, are obliged to respond. Not only by accepting the gift, but by participating in what I'll define as a reciprocal relationship. And we'll see this mapped out in a few ways. So the structure of uh, what we'll do today is to talk about anthropology, a little bit, of gift-giving. Uh, I'm going to jump over into a history of Protestants and Grace just a little bit to, uh, to frame what I'm saying, and then we'll finish by talking about implications for Christian community. And at the end, we'll land the plane in Ephesians 2. So that's, that's when we'll actually get into Ephesians. Um, so I want to start with anthropology of gifts. Um, and I need to begin by just making a brief philological or word point. The word grace in Paul's um, terminology is one of the standard words in antiquity for a gift. So someone brings you a charis, a gift, right? And it... and that's a pretty mundane observation I know but if it's new to you right think about sort of de-theologizing the word grace for a minute right I think if I say the word grace it's just so laden with spiritual uh... terminology that we miss out that it's it's a word for a gift right you've graced us with your presence you've gifted us with your presence right you see how it has that meaning even in English so let's let's just sort of talk about it in that sort of gift domain for a moment. Um, The the meaning, then, uh, helps us understand that this word fits into an ancient context of gift-giving and social reciprocity. And I can think of no better way to illustrate this than uh, what I find to be a very funny show, The Big Bang Theory. Um, If you haven't seen the show or this particular episode, Google it. Um, The show is called gift exchange. So Big Bang Theory, gift exchange. And what happens is the whole episode centers around Sheldon and Penny, two of the main characters, sort of engaged in a gift relationship. And it begins by Penny showing up with a gift. And it says Sheldon's name on it. And he freaks out. If you sort of know the character, you'll, you'll know he's sort of like, oh no, you've put a burden on me he actually says, you haven't given me a gift, you've given me an obligation. And then he goes on to explain, you know, the essence of the custom is that I now have to give you a gift because you've expressed that you desire to be in a relationship with me and I'm so important to you. And then he sort of sighs and goes, oh, it's so hard to be so loved. <laughs> and the whole episode is him negotiating, what am I going to give to you in return? Now. This episode might feel a little bit strange to uh, someone like me, who grew up in the West, but Sheldon is exactly right on the anthropology of gift-giving, especially in antiquity. And maybe some of you will also know that gift-based relationships uh, are how a lot of modern societies outside of the West function, right? Lots of societies. Now, I just want to illustrate that really quickly with one example from our own context. Has anyone ever been invited over to someone's house for dinner? Did you bring something? Did they a- Without being asked, did you bring something? Why? And you can, you can feel free to shout it out. Because <laughs> we get it, right? You get that there's an obligation, right? Has anyone... Now, you don't have to raise your hand this time. Has anyone ever been invited over to somebody's house and then not invited them back? You know, a month, two months later. Or maybe you've been the one who invited and realized, you know, we always invite the Thompsons over to our house, but they never invite us over to their house. Right? There's a gift relationship. There's a cycle that's happening of inviting someone into relationship, receiving that gift, but then is it reciprocal? And you might, over time, judge I value this relationship more than they do. Or they value this relationship more than I do, right? In other words, if it's not circular, you might be evaluating the worth differently. So when we talk about the the cycle of gift and obligations, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, is that gifts comes with strings attached, and they come with social obligations, right? No one is going to take you to court and say, we got invited to dinner, We didn't invite them back, so they owe us money, right? Although uh, one time somebody did tell me that, uh, and I can't remember, it might have been, it was definitely a uh, uh, a non-Western culture. They said, you know, it's typical in weddings for a gift of money to be given, and then the bride and groom sit down and write down exactly who gave us this money, how much, and then we have to give exactly that amount back when their kids get married, right? And they were sort of explaining, yeah, this is gift cycle over and over and over again I forget what exact culture that was but I was like yeah that's exactly right anyway gift cycle so there's obligations within this gift cycle giving gifts, receiving gifts, making return gifts over and over and over again so just to preview where we're going with this if grace means gift if God gives us the gift we don't do nothing you see where that's going We respond to God's gift, right? But there's more. These obligations to give, to receive, and to return gifts carry a social force uh, that bond people and bond societies together. I I just want to briefly introduce how this works itself out in ancient societies. So I've pulled a few texts Uh, together to show you that this isn't just a unique Paul thing, it's really a universal ancient thing. Here's Seneca. Uh, Seneca wrote a whole book on giving gifts. It's literally called on benefits or on gift giving. And in the very first line, almost nothing is more disgraceful than the fact that we do not know either how to give or to receive gifts. And he goes on to explain what we need to do is be very discriminatory about who we give or who we place our gifts upon. And he's sort of saying, you know, the idea is if I place my gift in a bad location, like give it to the wrong person, it won't come back to me because it's supposed to flow in a circle. So if I discriminate in, in in the sense of select and choose very carefully, if I put it on the right person, then it'll flow back to me. And like, and that's wise, that's good. That's good for you, and that's good for society. Or what about this? Hesiod, in his work, uh, a text called Works and Days, he says, we give to a generous person, but no one gives to someone who's stingy. The man who gives ungrudgingly is glad at heart, uh, rejoicing in his gift, but if a man forgets his shame and takes something, however small, his heart grows stiff and cold this is a text about a farmer who is engaging with his neighbors engaging with people around him trying to figure out how do I care for my neighbor but also make sure that my needs are cared for down the line and it's very much this reciprocal relationship again why do we give to the generous person because when I have a need they'll be generous back But if I give to someone who's stingy when I have a need I might be out of luck. What about Paul in Romans 15? Does this stuff show up in Paul? At present, Paul writes, I'm going to Jerusalem in a ministry to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to share their resources. They've been collecting money. And uh, they've been pleased to share them with the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do this, and indeed they owe it. Interesting word, right? Owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material things. Do you see the logic of gift right there? What have the uh, Gentiles received from the Jews? A Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so Paul reasons, if the Jews have given you their Messiah, that is a Jewish Messiah, it's time to open up that checkbook and write the check to them because they're suffering now. That's the logic of that text, isn't it? Just a few more examples in case we haven't made the point yet. (laughs) Uh, This is a a fun little example. Uh, Maybe this is even the Erastus mentioned in Romans. We don't know, but it's possible. Uh, This is an inscription uh, found in Corinth. You can go see it today. And it says, Erastus, in return for his adelship, laid this, that's th- that is, this stone pavement, at his own expense. And what this means is that Erastus gave a big financial gift to the city, and they used it to pave the road. And then they put his name on it. Gift relationship. Money, public acknowledgement, praise, recognition, gift relationship is fulfilled, and it's cyclical. One more text. Last one. Maybe you've read Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, and come across this little phrase and thought, what in the world is that doing there? And now you know. The son, the prodigal, longed to fill his stomach with pods fed to pigs, but no one gave him anything. And why would no one give him anything? He's not the kind of person you want to be in a gift relationship with. We've seen when he had money, what did he do with it? He wasted it. He squandered it. He didn't, certainly wasn't generous. So when it's time to think about who you want to place your gifts upon, people look at him and go, I don't think so. Not the kind of person. So that seems to be how gifts function in the ancient world try to sort of give a scattering of a number of different authors. Um, and uh, I'll mention this again at the end, but for now, when you read the New Testament, especially when you read Paul, think about that circular relationship, and I think you'll find it a lot of places where maybe you hadn't found it yet. It, uh, the first time I was thinking through these ideas, it just blew my mind how frequently these concepts come up uh, when, you, when you have sort of the eyes to see them. Um, Before we get to our Pauline text for the day, I do want to just slightly, uh, uh, it's not quite a tangent, but uh, a slight divergence towards why haven't Protestants been thinking in these categories for a long time? Uh, Largely, it's because uh, in our Reformation heritage, um, Luther, uh, his discovery of grace, um, took us in one direction, and I'm not saying that was a bad direction, but sometimes you can Overfocus on one thing and miss out on something else. And I'm suggesting that's what happened. So Luther, um, in his own day, is reading Paul in light of his own circumstances. That is, he projects um, ca- uh, Catholicism onto Paul and basically treats the Jews of Paul's day as proto Catholics. So uh, in his own day, Catholics were selling indulgences. They were s- selling ways to become right with God. Like, give, give your money to the church and we'll give you a uh, documentation that says that you're in the right. And Luther reads this own context back onto the biblical text. Especially Paul, and this leads to him a widespread teaching in Luther's day of Judaism as a religion of works righteousness, where you earn your salvation. And the good news for Luther was that Christianity offered the solution. If Judaism gave us works righteousness, Christianity is a religion of grace. So grace is set in opposition to works. The problem is Luther's understanding of Judaism is wrong. I won't spend much time on this because now we're deep in the weeds. (laughs) But uh, 40 years ago, when this book came out, it was uh, explosive in, the, in this discussion of Paul and grace and Judaism and works. Uh, what this author, E.P. Sanders, argued was is that Judaism is a religion of grace. And the characterization of Judaism as a religion of works is, in fact, a mischaracterization. And it's important what does E.P. Sanders argue you find all across Judaism? And he looks at text after text after text after text in this first century and surrounding context. And what he describes is a relationship where God initiates or invites people into the covenantal relationship, and then the Jews respond. Sounds like a circular relationship, doesn't it? So they receive God's grace and respond. And then Sanders argued, well, if that's what's going on, You can't argue that you're earning something. God initiates. He's the one who invites you into the relationship, right? So you're not provoking God, but you're responding to God. Um, Sanders is right about that. What Sanders was wrong about, though, was that there's more going on than just that. So if, if grace is everywhere in Second Temple Judaism, it's not understood everywhere the same. Paul could have his own flavor, his own teaching that sets it apart from the Judaism of his day. Um, (coughs) So what I want to argue then is Paul's concept of grace is not just that God initiates the relationship. That's a very Jewish, that's a very Christian idea. We don't provoke God to do things for us. God does something first, and we always respond. In fact, the opposite of that is definitionally paganism. I'm going to provoke you to do something, and then you'll respond, "You, God, will respond to me." That's definitionally paganism. Neither Paul nor any Jew would think that way. I also want to suggest Paul and Jews think that gifts are circular. That is, they require a response, that, that they're not free from constraint. So if that's true, what's unique about Paul? What's different about Paul? For Paul, it's that God's gifts are unmerited. Unlike Santa Claus, when God evaluates who gets gifts, he doesn't look at you and say, you're really special, I'm going to give my gift to you, and you've done such good things, I'm going to give gifts to you. You, not so much. <laughs> God doesn't value people like that. His gifts are not placed on a discriminatory basis. is maybe the way we might say it. And I want to show you a couple of uh, Pauline texts now with these concepts in mind that open up a little bit differently now that we've uh, introduced these topics. First in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound. By no means, how can we who died to sin go on living in it? This is a, a wonderful example of Paul anticipating an objection to his main argument. And the idea here of the objection is, hey, if I keep sinning, doesn't your need to be gracious and merciful to me like get bigger and bigger and bigger? Right? Like when my son does something wrong, if it's just a little thing, sometimes it would be like, hey, don't do that again, right? And we're done. Sometimes, you know, the other day, in fact, he, he joked about hitting his sister. And I sat him down and said, if you ever touch your sister, you're going to have problems, right? So the bigger the sin, right? Is he getting more grace from me when he needs it? Paul saying, hey, if grace is... Circular. If grace is unmerited, if you get what you don't deserve, well, aren't you just making God a, a more generous giver by sinning a lot more? And Paul objects to this. No. Just because God is very generous and merciful doesn't mean you get to keep living sinfully. That is, you have to respond appropriately to God's grace. Or uh, Romans six fourteen through fifteen. Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Sometimes that's read as you're not under law, the constraints of the law, but you're not, but you're under nothing. What if grace is that circular concept? You're not under the constraints of the law. You're under the constraints of gift, which is reciprocal, right? Comes with a different set of constraints, but it's different. Last text from Romans, and then we'll get to Ephesians in our last few minutes. Therefore, since we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here in this text, we see, I think, the heart of Paul's concept of grace. God doesn't look at us and say, ah, you're good. You get my gifts. While we're still sinners, Christ dies for us. That is, he doesn't evaluate us on the basis of our worth when he chooses to give us the gift of Christ this is the heart of Paul's gospel now to Ephesians Uh, I want to read Ephesians 2 1 through 10 to kind of get the flow and then I'll make uh, three quick comments on it and then uh, draw some conclusions Uh, I have it most of it up there but if you had your Bible this would be a good time to open it up because I've uh, had to elide some of it out just to fit it on the screen but I'll read all of it in context Paul begins the chapter, You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the rule over the power of the air and the spirit that's now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy... Out of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead through our, transpre- through our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, and so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we were made, sorry, for we are what he made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand in order that we might walk in them. So with that circular idea of grace and now that text in mind, a few reflections. In, in our text, Paul describes humanity as trapped in a bondage. Paul says humanity is dead in their trespasses. The entire course of human life in this construal is under the control of powerful forces that determine our everyday conduct and thoughts. Paul refers to these forces in a few different ways, the ruler of the power of the air, the flesh, and so forth. There's nothing that, it, that the dead can do to earn God's favor, and especially his salvation. The human is going to receive salvation, it's going to be a rescue operation. It's going to be a divine intervention. So we can't have a provoking God to do something for us if we're dead. That's the idea. As we noted above, the kind of dynamic Paul sets up in Ephesians 2 could best be described as a relationship where God, who is of infinite worth, looks at us who are dead of very, very little worth, accordingly, right? This is best described by John Barclay, uh, a Pauline scholar, as a, a, a relationship that is incongruous or unequal. Remember our text from Seneca. Be careful where you place your gifts. Give to people who are worthy of your gifts. God looks at us very unworthily. Right? We're dead. But in Christ. We get value, okay? So Paul's Paul's understanding of grace is that the giver and the recipient, that is God and humans, are not of equal value or worth. God does not search out those who are most worthy of his gifts and only give to them. Rather, God gives indiscriminately or incongruously. And this means that there is an incong- incongruity between God and us, And yet God puts himself into relationship with us nevertheless. The reason God does this is my second point from our text. God desires to be merciful. So verse 4 says, But God rich in mercy. So after describing this horrible plight of humanity in our first three verses, Paul kind of abruptly shifts to God being rich in mercy. And mercy is a synonym of grace. If grace is uh, entailing this cyclical relationship, mercy is a word of getting what you don't deserve, right? So if if, if grace for Paul means um, the incongruous relationship of God putting himself in relationship with us, and then the the circle that follows, then mercy is kind of a synonym word or a cognate, a similar word. the theme of mercy, though, doesn't just show up here. It spans the entire Bible, both uh, explicitly in texts like Hosea six six. I desire mercy, not sacrifices. And what th- what that text means is I desire to be merciful, right? Not to show, not to uh, uh, not just your obedience and sacrifices. Uh, Or texts text like Lamentations 3.23, my mercies never come to an end, God says. But we also see it implicitly. There's lots of times, I'll just give you one example, where God is extremely patient and merciful. I think of the story of Abraham. God says to Abraham, I'm going to go destroy this city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does Abraham do? He goes and pleads with God, right? Would you destroy it if there was this many people? who were found faithful in the city. And God's like, no, sure, I I won't do that. Well, what about, and he keeps sort of talking God back and back and back and back. And God's always like, sure, yeah, fine, fine, fine. Right? (laughs) I'll be extremely merciful, extremely merciful. We see it all over scripture that God desires to show mercy time and time again. The last point from our text, living a virtuous life. The passage ends with a reminder That God has not only made it possible, but that he also expects us to live a virtuous life. God has broken the power of the various forces, including uh, 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 compelling us to do evil. And God has called us to live out our daily lives in a manner that's consistent with his holy and righteous character. In fact, he's designed us to live a lifestyle of what Paul calls good works in the last verse. I know it's not on the screen, but it's verse 10. This includes demonstrating love to others in the same way that God has demonstrated his love for us. It entails eradicating the evil practices from our own lives and appropriating all the virtues of Christ. And this passage, I I would argue, prepares us for what we'll see in a few weeks, the ethical teaching of Paul in chapters 4 through 6. Paul sure has a lot of things to say about how you should live your lives, how we should live our lives, doesn't he? Whoops. whoops, um, Which follow naturally as our response to what God has done for us in Christ. So the purpose of God's redemption and empowerment of believers then stands in contrast to many of the religions of Paul's day. The orientation of many people in Paul's day was to approach the gods in order to provoke them to do things uh, in response to humans. But the orientation of God's gift in Christ is very different. It begins with an unmerited, undeserved gift, but it comes with expectations. It comes with the expectation that his people will give, will love, and will do good deeds as a response. Now, I want to finish... We're we're right at the end just by drawing out two quick implications and the second one is going to help bridge us to two weeks from now when I come back. So first, Paul's self-understanding, his mission to the Gentiles, and indeed his understanding of all humanity is built upon this idea of an incongruous gift. So what do I mean by that? When Paul goes and ministers to the Gentiles, did Jews of Paul's day have high opinions of Gentiles and their social ethics? Paul can hardly say the word Gentiles without burping the word sinners. Right? Like Peter, you and I know as Jews that the Gentiles who are sinners, right? Galatians 2. So if God is pouring out his spirit on the Gentiles, Paul is starting to reason like, whoa, God must value these people differently than I do. Right? He must think about them in much more merciful terms than I do. So his mission, the way all humans, and even Paul eventually coming to understand, why did God call me? Paul talks about being set apart from before he was born. And before you're born, you don't have good or bad to evaluate, do you? God can choose without discrimination at that point and say, you'll receive this gift and that's how Paul configures his own life. So that's the first idea. I think this is so deep in Paul's bones. It explains his own life and his own mission, which is to me is pretty comprehensive. Secondly and finally, Paul's conception of grace comes with a radical imperative for Christian communities. And here's what I mean. If the heart of God's grace is that it initiates relationships between God and humans uh, that are not based on worth or value. What would that mean for the formation of Christian communities today? There's several texts I could point to. Uh, I'm just going to gesture at one of them. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about God's ministry of reconciliation. And then he says, that ministry has been given to us if God has reconciled us in Christ by giving us a gift without the basis of our worth and we are to bend that ministry outward, how do we evaluate the worth of other people? I could think in a lot of spaces where certain people, certain types of people, certain ethnicities, fill in the blank, are more valuable than others in worldly terms, right? Paul's gospel has something to say about that. Paul's gospel has something to say about how different worldly systems of value are relativized in light of this gift. So uh, I don't want to stifle our imaginations, but think about just one example. In some Christian communities, both those who are very young or very old are seen as people to whom we minister but not as people who have valuable gifts to give within the body of Christ. We help them. They don't help us. Right? That's just one example. There's many, many examples and use your imaginations. We'll talk more in, in two weeks. But we, we perceive the young or the really old maybe as not having enough, as much value as the sort of young, capable people. I think Paul's gospel has something to say about that. If God initiates relationships without the basis of our worth, what would it mean for our communities to be built and structured similarly? And I'll close by saying this. That has to be, to my thinking, the logic of Paul's probably most famous expression, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, Neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. Uh, in two weeks, we'll come back and we'll talk more about what that means in Galatian, uh, in Ephesians two eleven to fifteen, where Paul talks about that Jew and Gentile relationship. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it still speaks powerfully to us in our own day. Uh, we pray that as we uh, receive your grace that we would also live it out in response, in faithful response to what you've done for us in Christ. I pray that you would, uh, with your Spirit's help, empower our imaginations on what that might mean for our communities. Uh, Would you give each person here a sense of how they might live that out uh, in the coming week even. And we thank you especially for this community of believers and pray that you would have your hand upon each of them. In Christ's name we pray, amen.